Well, welcome to Bike Talk. I'm sitting here on a very warm Seattle morning about to talk with Robin Chase over on the other side of the country. Great to see you, Robin. It's lovely to be here. And I actually do see you in addition to hearing you. How great is that? I know it's great to do these on Zoom. We're just recording the audio, but it's fun to just talk and see each other. So let me read your bio quickly just to set the stage because it's impressive and it's long and I just took a little short one. So, um, so listeners, Robin Chase is a transportation entrepreneur. She is co-founder and former CEO of Zipcar, the largest car sharing company in the world. Buzzcar, a peer-to-peer car sharing service in France, now merged with Drivey and Go Loco, an online ride-sharing community. She is also co-founder and executive chairman of Venium, a vehicle communications company building the networking fabric for the internet of moving things. She is also the author of the book, Peers, Inc., How People and Platforms Are Inventing the Collaborative Economy and Reinventing Capitalism. And I think I will end there. I highly recommend you go check her out online um, for more because she's done really cool work and been kind of a leader right from the beginning. So we're just going to try and have an, a nice conversation and not get too going on and on about stuff. So I guess my first thing, because you and I met via Twitter, which was so great, and I'm not 100% familiar with all of everything that you've been doing, but I wanted to say that your background in a way in the early car share business reflects just how early you got into some important transportation developments. And I'd love if you could tell listeners a bit about your personal journey, because it feels like you were really early to car share and kind of and what's happened since then. I was so 21 years ago, or maybe even if we go 22 years ago, I have a co-founder who is German and she had seen car sharing in action in on vacation in Berlin. And she came back and said, Robin, what do you think of this idea? And I thought, wow, what an amazing idea. This is what the internet is made for, sharing specific things. And this is what wireless will make possible. So we co-founded Zipcar 21 years ago. And I joke that I was the right person to hear that story right at that minute. So I really did I had been thinking a lot about internet and wireless. I had one car, a fam- we were a family of five, and that car would go sit at my husband's commute all day while I didn't have access to a car. And what I wanted was a car sometimes. Did you want to own one? Just wanted one sometimes. So the technology and everything was ripe, and I'd never done transportation before. And I also think that's why we were successful, is I didn't have any prejudices around what was technically possible or what consumer demand would look like or whatever. But Basically, I'm an urban person, and most of the time, I get around walking or biking or subway, and I just you know, need a car sometimes. And if I think about today's world, I really do feel like we're in this moment. We should be transitioning to a multimodal world. And so bikes, you know, I really do love bikes. I always have loved bikes, and it's, it's an important part of the future I'm getting ahead of ourselves and I, and I have a love affair with electric bikes now. So after I did Zipcar, what I realized was transportation is the center of the universe. <laughs> it's the gateway to all opportunity and that people don't, it's invisible to people or they kind of just don't even think about it yet. It really is the single, I, I want to say, okay, your health outside of your health. It's the single most important thing. Like it connects every other thing. So while I hadn't, done transportation before and thought about it. Once I got into the middle of it, then I had a love affair with it. And I also care a lot about climate change. I'd say that's probably my primary focus. 
but given my expertise, I work on climate change and transportation, but it kind of is a delightful thing there too, because it's so important to addressing climate change. Transportation is such a heavy, big piece. So therefore, you know, it's, it's an important place to work and spend your life, your, your life. So after that, I did a number of other startups. Go Loco was in 2007, 2009. I thought that we had this opportunity to do real ride sharing as in, you know, I've got a car, three empty seats going to New York from Boston. We now had smartphones and geolocation and online payment. And I thought this is gonna make it easy. And I could not make that work in the US. And so after two years, I gave half of venture, my venture money back to my investors. A couple years after that, I did peer-to-peer car sharing company called Buzzcar in France. And me and nine others decided to launch in Paris at the same time. Uh, we weren't number one. And, and as I say, then I merged with Drivey, which has recently merged with Get Around, although they're kind of peer mergers. Um, Drivey does Europe and Get Around does the US. I think in the US, ride sharing, going back to Go Loco, it's going to be really hard to succeed. And dozens and dozens of startups had tried. And I'm good friends with Blabacar founders which is the real ride-sharing company in Europe that's had wild success. Because in the US, we are, cities are islands of car independence. And, and to get any place, you have to go by car. Like we don't have, we, you just don't have any other options and cars are dirt cheap here. So everyone effectively has to have a car. Whereas in Europe, life is much more car independent and you can go many places independent. And people rent cars rarely but buses and trains exist and they're important. And that's what people use um, Blabacar for. But in any case, then after that, I wrote this book, Peer Zinc. Then I co-founded my first nonprofit, NUMO, the New Urban Mobility Alliance. I guess this takes us to where my head is at and the conversation we could talk about today is what is the future that we need and what is the future that we want? And here we are post-pandemic in the middle of a stimulus with 10 years to reduce emissions by 50%, how should we make investments? How should we advocate? I'll throw the Black Lives Matter movement in the US and actually worldwide, the issue of of racial disparities into the mix. And it kind of boils down to me, and I said to you I wasn't gonna give a long preamble, and here I'm giving a long preamble. I feel like the future boils down to me that for a dozen solid and 20 other reasons we really need to get away from a monomodal car primary regulation budget thought process by policymakers and by individuals and by people who build houses and people who choose where they're going to put their offices. We really need to get away from that to a multimodal one and have much more resiliency, sustainability, equity, joy. So bicycling, walking, and transit is really where I'm advocating and thinking these days because the car portion of our transportation world is too large. So that needs to shrink and these other things need to grow. Yeah. You know, going all the way back to the beginning of what you said, I love that you got into this. You'd never done transportation before, which makes me think, right. And now you've sort of become a futurist in a way, right. Because you can see the forest for the trees and you're standing sort of, I don't know what they say now in the language, 30,000 feet above this whole thing, looking at this and then having all this experience in Europe 
and just going one plus one is not like we are so car dependent it's crazy and looking at the way europeans do it and and the other thing that i've noticed and talked with a lot of friends in this bikes for climate bike twitter world it's just like we're just allowing you know people go to europe because it's beautiful so listen to this good um little anecdote when i was doing zipcar i went to ford in detroit and i went to ford credit because that was, I guess that's where they were doing like fleet car sales or something. In any case, I was in the offices of Ford Motor Company Credit Division. And it's this kind of low slung building in Detroit, way out in the middle of everywhere. It's like, like a city block. Oh, I'm in the middle familiar. Of the fields. I'm okay. from the area. I've okay, driven two, down that road. <laughs> and it's two stories tall. And what killed me in there was clearly somebody had been on a great European vacation. And there was photograph after photograph on the walls of hallways of these beautiful European <laughs> carless cities. And I just thought, are you paying attention? Like, where is it that we want a vacation? And where is it that we want to go? And what do we find beautiful? It's the places without cars. Like, just. Well, I mean, I feel like you should have stood there and said, hey, Bob Smith, could you stand right here and like taking a picture of whoever it was next to that? And then this could be, I mean, this is a wonderful story, Robin, because. I mean, it's so, it is, you watch these people drive, you know, buy their F-150s and their SUVs. I mean, I'm thinking about Seattle and what they want to do with all their money and their time. Well, from climate change, we don't love that they want to fly, but when they fly, they want to go to these amazing cities and they're like, oh, Paris was so wonderful and whatever. So I, all around the advocacy and sort of making this point and sort of what you've seen how does it work to convert or transition a brain that thinks about it's just about cars and never makes the connection with why they want to go to Europe? We are up against something because this has been obvious for years. Okay, so now you're getting into my new theory. And I, and I want to actually want to tell the backstory. Yes. Um, I was pre-pandemic. I honestly traveled 50% of the time if it wasn't the summertime. And I was leaving Washington National Airport and I went through security and immediately behind me was Elizabeth Warren. This will be two and a half years ago or two years ago. And I had been thinking in the back of my mind that I was really, and she's from Massachusetts, I'm from Massachusetts. And I had been thinking, oh, you know, I'd really like to talk to her and have an impact on her policy around transportation. So here she is immediately behind me in the line. And she of course doesn't know who I am, but I say, Elizabeth, I've been wanting to talk to you about your transportation. I love it. <laughs> and, and I will give her credit. I mean, so she said, and here was her question. She said, oh, what do you think about raising the gas tax? Now, needless to say, I, like every other transportation progressive person, has been advocating for years and years and years to raise the gas tax. Now, guess what I answered? I thought for a moment, I'm looking at her, this national presidential candidate, and I said, I don't think you should waste any political capital on the gas tax because uh, it's an obsoleting tax as we get moved towards more efficient, fuel efficient cars and electric fuels. And I had to say in my head, in my head, like, what, 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 what? <laughs> and, but what was really intriguing to me and was my insight was her answer. And her answer was, oh, good. I've been really worried about the rural poor. And then we said goodbye, went our ways, and I sat in the airport, and then I sat on the plane, and then I thought about it for a while, and I was thinking, why is it that we never talk about 
why presidential candidates never do transportation policy in their stump pitches speeches is because it's always something right for rural areas or something right for urban areas, that there is nothing that crosses those two places. So I thought and thought and thought and thought, what is something that crosses urban and rural, Republican and Democrat, that was something cross-cutting? And now I'll give you my pitch. So did you know there's this huge unseen and unnoted percent of the population? 50% of the population at any given moment cannot use a car because they don't have a driver's license or they don't, they're living, they have no car or they live in a one car household and that car is out or they don't have enough money to pay for car repair or put gas in that car. And so it's fully 50, if, if we're only do everything for cars at any given second, right, right now, right this second, 50% of us can't get in the car and go someplace. We are trapped. And so who are those people? So, oh yes, so 30% of the people are less than 16, but 19% are physically impaired and will never get a driver's license. There are people who have lost their driver's, driver's licenses. I think it's like six or 7% have temporary losses of driver's licenses because they did a DUI or, or in some states, they didn't pay some parking ticket or you know they didn't pay something. And, for that $20 bill you owe, they take away your driver's license. And then I was looking at who doesn't have a car. So as I say, statistically, I've got all these memorized because I was doing this. <laughs> so statistically we say, oh, only 9% of American households don't have cars. 91% or 92% do have cars. But when you look at it from a racial perspective, 20% of black households do not have cars. And it's 4.5% of white houses that don't have cars. So when you plan an entire transportation system, and when we spend all of our billions and billions of dollars on cars and on highways, all the people who don't have a car and can't, don't have a license, they're just completely excluded. And so one of the things I feel like we don't do well enough, and what I'm trying to do with this unnoticed 50%, is to have everyone realize, oh yeah, that is me. That is me when my husband takes the car out for food shopping or something and I'm living in some more car. That is my 15 year old who can't get a job that he can't get to by bike. That is me, mom, driving my kids to every blasted single thing. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, my brother who lost his license for some who knows what. Like I really want people to get into that and so what do we need? I was reading a young girl quote just recently and I thought, oh, I should start using this, that walking should be a human right. And, and in the country we have built, and this is my Twitter tested sentence here. Oh, good. <laughs> um, we've spent the last hundred years making it safer to fly across the ocean than to cross the street. And that is a statistically true fact. Oh my gosh. Have you been using that in all of your fancy <laughs> meetings lately? <laughs> I haven't. So I just look at it and I think we have, because the infrastructure we built out over the last hundred years and the way we've done it, you, we honestly have lost the right of walking and similarly, I'd say biking. Like you, that is not an option. That is just not an option for a huge fraction of people. You can't go anyplace without risking life and limb for a large number of people. And now we can come to 
today and this moment and the jobs proposal, we're putting a ton of money, we're putting lots of money in lots of different places. And I think, yes, you know, I'd like us to spend all that much money and there's a lot on rail and there's a lot on complete streets and there's a lot of, but the lion's share of those little bar charts goes to supporting and enhancing our electric vehicle market. Yep. And I think some money should go to that, but 174 billion. And I think, wouldn't it be an amazing, so Eisenhower had his vision together with his military of a interstate, highway interstate thing. Can we imagine an interstate walking and biking you know what, just imagine if we had complete streets and you could get to places without having money or a license. And, and I feel like it is a human right. It should be something that we absolutely do. And it would cost just a fraction of those things. I think you'd get something like 100, one, 100 to 300 miles of bike pedestrian lanes, mile lanes to every car lane like the cost of those things. Get people walking and bike. So this is always the thing that we're up against is people need to get walking and biking in order to see there's a lot of reasons they don't need their car, but we keep funneling money towards car dependency so people don't get the nudge to walk and bike. But what you said earlier, we're in this moment, thanks to COVID, that we're hoping we don't waste more and more people realized and had fun riding bikes with kids, then then moving into riding bikes for short trips, etc. And we know all the bike sales, all the bike sales that happened, like the doubling of bike sales. And when you ask people, you know, why don't you ride to the grocery store? Or wouldn't you like your kid to ride their bike to school? Or, or you know, would you like to just go for a bike ride? And people say, I'm too scared. Like that is the number one reason. Yeah. I, you and I know when I'm on the street and I'm riding an e-bike and people will stop if I'm locking it up and go, ooh, that is so cool. Tell me about it. And I go, it's amazing. Da, 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 da. And I go, have you ever tried it? And they're like, oh no, right? It's too yeah. unsafe. And I just, it's the cart before the horse and the horse before the cart. And the thing is, is that what we know, and I think you would know this more than I would, but it sure feels like the consumers and the people that we need to make people who want to walk and bike louder, Yes. hopefully from a social justice perspective or a racial justice, get help more of those communities, or not help, I help the word empower, but get them to be louder about not wanting to be car dependent. I don't right. know, I don't know. Right, right, I, I agree. And I think that it should be a goal. It feels to me like a rational goal for everybody everywhere to have car independence as an option. So what I, one of the things I'm always talking about is try it, you'll like it. I have this vision, right, of the, and this, I'm just going to generalize here because I think it's fine. White 65 to 75 year old guys in Congress take their freaking car away for like a month in D.C., and ride their bike, like, you know, give them a bike to ride, give them an e-bike to ride. You're asking for even a month, Andrea. I think I've been- A week. A day. And at the two hours, let's, I feel like we need to have trials on e-bikes for everybody. And it's yeah. so fun. You do, you think, oh my God, I feel so strong and cool. And it's like so nimble and it's so amazing. And the wind's in my hair. And suddenly, oh my God, I'd love to do this with my yes. grandkids. And, da, 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 yes. da. and so, yes. and 
we are there. So this car dependency thing is really around try it, you'll like it and getting these demos out there. And I want to keep talking about your thing though, but I want to no, put no, a pin in that. Demos, demos, well, is a, I'm, demo, I'm so demos are huge. And the bike industry, what I'm seeing is industry people like the e-bike shops, et cetera, everyone's game for it. But there's like one person I know who does e-bike demos and really it will only happen if like some big campus wants to do it like Microsoft, or, like it's this whole thing or the city gets involved and partners with the so-and-so and the so-and-so and so-and-so. We have to make it easier, like buy fleets of bikes that their whole purpose is to be demoed all over the country, do road trips of them. I don't know, but it's what you're talking about is something else that I get into with my food system stuff. It is a just transition, right? It so it is a just transition. transition to what you're talking about and i do want you to go a little bit into the freedom network well thing. so wait let's so let's just talk about that one piece though as we're talking you must hear like i hear all the time robin not everyone can ride a bike and i think you are right and not everyone can drive a car in fact and so but a lot can you know we have those gigantic motorized wheelchairs that are now going in the street because it's too dangerous we have three-wheeled little the covered bicycles. My mom's 96 and she has one. She doesn't ride anymore, but she does, does own it. And she did cool. ride it. Cool. But I, I feel like we need to, but here's the thing, Robin, to your point, we say not everyone can, and not everyone can drive a car or whatever, but if what the whole world, you know, capitalistic society is all about, let's figure out a way to get really poor people able to drive a car and to get a loan so that they can like, we'll do anything to help people get a car, but we won't do anything to help them do these other things. Let me give you some numbers on car ownership that I have committed to memory, the cost of car ownership. So, you know, AAA comes out with these numbers every year and it's like $10,000 a year per car right now to own, operate, and maintain, depreciate. But when you look at the US government household budget surveys, so these are really robust, every single state, lots and lots of people, the median or the average household expenditure on transportation, which is their car, um, is it runs between 15 and 17%, depending on the year, 15 to 17% of your household. That's the average. For the poorest 20% of us, it's 33% of your budget goes to pay for your car. Oh my and, gosh. And if you think about that, if you could only get your place of employment by car, it's your first dollar. Your first dollar goes to getting the car, paying for the car, fueling for the car, praying it doesn't break down so you can get to work. And I was telling people, even, even regular everyday people who are paying their 15 to 17%, the first hour and a half of work pays off the cost of getting you to work. So I, you know, me with my communication strategy brain, whatever, I, this is sort of the first I've heard that. I'm sure you've said it in a lot of your panels and stuff, but I'm always thinking, what is your first dollar? It isn't food. It isn't, it isn't housing. Like this is huge. The first dollar you spend or the first hour and a half of work or whatever, that what you just quoted is yeah. hugely powerful. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. And I don't know, do you think that if those were the terms that were used in policy conversations with Yahoo's on the Hill, that they would take account of this? Or I just think, that I that's think, I think that we say that, but then I, um, way back with Zipcar, um, I had made these little one-pager sheets that were why Zipcar and car sharing is good for you. And I had them, you know, one targeted at 
humans, like people. <laughs> one target at universities, one target at car manufacturers, one target at re real estate, one target at the city, um, city governments. And so if we talk about bikes or we talk about car dependence, you know, let's, in a car dependent economy and a car dependent infrastructure, I feel like we can go down, who am I talking to, you know? Health benefits, oh my God, there's this chart I just downloaded that, that's worldwide. We all know that the largest killer of 15 to 29 year olds is a children, is cars. But that, as looking at this bar chart, that death rate that we associate with car accidents is one-tenth the death rate from cars associated with heart and lung illnesses that deaths wow. that people are having wow. it's just completely you know out of proportion so for health reasons and we just saw covid and and who was dying from covid people who had what did they call them secondary or what, what was that term of art for people who had co comorbidities oh yes and the comorbidities were being overweight having bad <laughs> heart and lungs um Bikes. <laughs> so bikes. Then we can talk about, okay, job creation. And I say, okay, we want to talk about getting to jobs or, or creating jobs, creating jobs, building this bike network that I was, you mentioned that I, I was, I'm trying to call it the freedom network, which I think it is. I think, well, I think that's a good term. And I, and I also just to pause there, I freedom network is a great term. It's bipartisan. It's everything that you've said. And let's start using it. So there's that. So keep going. So we can say, you know, which creates more jobs. And T4A has done some great work on showing that when they looked at the Tiger Grant monies, that more jobs were created in the bike and transit per, you know, per million dollars spent, more jobs were created when you invest in bike and in transit than if you invest in highways. And then we can go to just like maintaining, like the ongoing maintenance I would say the surround of bike maintenance and bike lane maintenance, it feels like that's creating a ton of jobs. Um, so I'd say, so health, check. Jobs, check. And access to jobs we just discussed. Like, so maybe not all jobs can be accessed by bike, but e-bikes, I think, turn that bike access of, okay, I'm willing to do a three to five mile commute each way to, 10 to 15 mile commutes each way people are willing to do by e-bikes if they were safe. Um, then we can talk about sustainability and the whole EV emphasis now, I wanna be clear, intensively used vehicles like the delivery trucks, the taxis, the buses, all of those should definitely without question 100% be electric first, let's get them done. Yep. But the associated emissions with the manufacturing of cars and the manufacturing of the infrastructure to go with them and the maintenance, even if, it, if everything else is electric, is enormous. It's, it's double and triple the CO2 per passenger mile than going by bike or going by transit. Mm -hmm. And if we're teeing up this country to meet a goal of 50% reductions by 2030, you can't do that by electrifying cars. You have to have mode shift. You have to have mode shift. You can't. And so that's, I mean, I'm always wondering, 
how that integrates. You may be in these conversations. I don't know. It seems like Secretary Buttigieg is is at least open and kind of on top of the stuff a little bit. It's just sort of interesting. Like all of these facts exist, and this idea that if you sw switch everything to EV tomorrow, it would not solve the situation is is obvious. It's like I guess I, I'm just frustrated, and and it makes so much sense, and it would serve everyone in the country. And I will say one of the things I say both in my plant-based space and my bike space that you know is if we get as many people as want to and are able to shift to bikes, e-bikes, et cetera, there is no downside. You, the driver, only have fewer cars. Like this story- This is what I used to say. I this, used story to say is not this. Being, this story is not being told, Robin. And, and the second story from my communications- Oh, no, no, but wait, wait. People do think there's a downside because of bike lanes. The bike line takes away from their being able to swerve off to the left or the right if they want to. I mean, that, so I see, I see what you're saying, but the fewer cars in the row, right, they'll say that, right? But, but I think there's something to say for the win, what, which involves get you on an e-bike as a demo for a week. And even if you're not completely converted, you will drive differently. As we know, you will drive a little bit more safely. And it's almost like driver's ed, right? If we had a repeat driver's we ed. We need driver's ed. We need to have that anyway for micromobility addition. Yeah, we, so we totally do. Um, the other thing that, from a communication standpoint, that I'm seeing with Americans, because we are such, uh, everyone has to have two and three cars, right? So even if we said, I mean, I'm always saying an e-bike is your second car. Right. Even if we said convert your first car to an EV, then get it like. So the thing is, is that all these people are going to resist. They're not going to go overnight. They're da, da, da. everyone's so freaked out. They're afraid. It's like, what if there was more of a campaign like see the, e, you know, the EV is your car and the e-cargo bike or the e-bike is your second car? Like, exactly. And it's optional. I mean, I feel like we're not there's you don't have to force people, but there is movement and legislation afoot that says if we do any. EV rebates, we should extend that to another kind of V as in bikes and that they should get that. Um, but I'm also, I feel like any EV rebates, car, any electric car rebates really need to be um, more focused because my next door neighbor just bought a Tesla and they certainly- Oh, don't I knew rebate. you were gonna say that. No, you just, you just can't do that. <laughs> But so back to Buttigieg and their budget and do they know, there's a part of me that wants to keep, that wants to be, because I, I know a number of the people, senior people, but I haven't talked to them. I feel like there's political signaling and being palatable. And by saying, oh, we're going to support the car industry. Yeah. It's less terrifying than saying we're going to move to multimodal. And the multimodal... Uh there is money in there for that. Like they do have monies in there. I, as I say, I still wish that they would push on a freedom network because I think it has such, it costs so little when we're talking, the amount of money we're talking about now that it would cost so little to so dramatically change the quality of lives of people quickly and viscerally. Like they would really feel different just whether who, you ride a bike or not. Who knows about the freedom network? Right? I mean, how far have you gotten with this? The people who are probably not Buttigieg, but- His buddies? Up there, yeah, <laughs> okay. his buddies. I, I once was hiring way back for a buzz car, a social, a social a marketing person. 
And when I interviewed this one guy, he said, I know what we need to do is we need to create a short video about Buzzcar and make it go viral. And then everyone will see it. And we'll see. And I said, yeah, good idea. Check. And so I feel like, oh, I, I just need to make a video that we can get into Biden's hands so that I have, you know, I, I have ideas for how to do this. And, and, and one of the things is to, again, I, as I step back and look at journalists who are covering climate and kind of media and the people that I know in the space who are interested in these stories, like this is an interesting thing. It exists. You've got it written on paper, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Like there, there are transportation innovation, climate emergency focused writers who could break a thing by like, I mean, I think there is something there. And I I, pers- I personally wouldn't rely on, you know, the video going viral because now everyone's not. Well, Andrea, paying- you can please, you have my Twitter thread where I have, I think I've sent to you that has all the facts. I feel like I've done a lot of homework for you journalists. Yes. All the numbers. The piece we haven't discussed enough is the, yet is the equity reason to do this. And as I said, not only is, or 20% of households without a car, but we can think of all those car, when we talked about essential workers getting to work, which was another interesting thing the pandemic did for us and how they relied on mass transit and what happens when that transit goes down or how they have miserable commutes. It, one of my takeaways from the pandemic is we need to have more resiliency in our network. So if, if the transit for some reason you can't take, it doesn't, you have to run out and buy a car. You can, under duress, if you've got a long commute, go by bike. But that you have some option and it's not, and just like with cars, you have to, you have options of transit or walking, but we really, really, really need to put resiliency into this piece. And so essential workers have some options, optionality. They're not completely screwed. And the other pieces I've been thinking about is all of the traffic stop situations that go on. And no doubt, I think you probably saw on Twitter, there was this video of, I think it was in Cleveland, a little boy, I wanna say a gang of boys, but in a in a way that's a pleasant gang. So I think gang maybe has only negative connotations now, but- A crew, know, a crew. A crew of boys, <laughs> teenage boys, having a really fun time on their bicycles. I saw it. Oh my gosh. And then at the end of the story, they're having a fun time riding on the street, riding on the right side, the correct side of the street. And then there's this giant pullover with all these cars and all this stuff. And then they yell at them and they say, what did we do? We didn't do anything wrong. And then they confiscate their bikes and get them. But so I was thinking though, if we, if we can get more people out of cars, there's less opportunity for people to be that's not the solution that is not the solution for cars but i feel like one of the things i'd like to see with bicycles and walking is that there are very few rules that you can be breaking when you use them like but whether you're white black purple yellow right it's just like and i don't think people need to be registering even though people keep saying it like you don't have to register your bike you don't have to have a driver's license to ride your bike you don't have to have any of those things you don't have to have a helmet but we won't go there. Exactly. You have to, like, so I'd like to see biking together with walking be something that does not have rules that you can be breaking. I think back to your point about resilience, one of the things that I've actually had a fun time talking with the guys at Turn about, Turn e-cargo bikes a couple of years ago at a bike show here in Seattle, 
was the idea that for fires and floods and all this stuff, you know, everyone or an earthquake, right? In Seattle, we're always like any day now, we're gonna have an earthquake and who's gonna get out? You know, I've got my e-bike and my trailer for my dogs and um, and I'll get as far as my battery takes me. But the idea is that you can warm your way in on an e-cargo bike to get safe health and safety, to get the emergency people in and out and whatever. And the I think part of this building strategy with regard to messaging this is to love up any community that's doing that to, you know, uh, I mean, I think there's so much opportunity in telling those stories. And here's the thing, getting all the fire people and the police people like totally psyched about how resilient that is. Okay, so so I was in Mexico City and they had this thing called BC Emergencia that is a group of people that can get trained. And what they had determined was in the last um, most recent earthquake where rubble had fallen down or wires across the road, it had been cyclists that had been able to go in and bring in food, bring in water, take people out because they are so much sneakier and smaller space and whatever. So now they've trained a cohort of people. They have this two or 300 volunteers who are trained and ready to be the emergency response team in case of an earthquake. I mean, this is, <laughs> I'm not a journalist, right? And I'm not, but I just feel like there's, a, I could feed, full-time feed some journalists, <laughs> all the incredible feel-good stories and all of that about the amazing stuff that's happening that also brings us all together. Because if Mexico undergoes a hurricane or a, not a hurricane or a, an earthquake or something, Seattle and, and LA are going to have to do it anyway. If they're doing it in Mexico and that amazing thing happens in Mexico, raising that up and showing that as, as an example and building community around how cool it is to use bikes for these amazing purposes that isn't being done. That isn't we, and that's the other thing, Rob, and you and I know on bike Twitter, we love the stuff up and we're there. And anytime somebody kind of says, I just bought an e-bike, we call them in and we join them in. But again, we're in our little echo chamber. How do we spread back to the demos, right? The, the love and the joy and the like discovery of all the ways we can use these things. I just, ah, it's frustrating. Well, part of the, part of the um, safety around cars, <laughs> money and budgets, um, and we know that pedestrians and cyclists are the ones that are in rising number of deaths where the car, person inside the car deaths are going down. And then to the equity issues, black and brown people are two times more likely to be among those dead pedestrians and cyclists. Um, one of the things I think that we need to do to address that, in addition to better infrastructure, is like the the Dutch have, and probably other countries have, you know, when you're eight at school, you get bicycle training. And then when you're 16 and doing your driver's license, your driver's license includes what's it like to drive on a multimodal roads. And I think about the transition that's happening kind of quickly in the US today in some cities with this rise of cyclists or scooters, or even on rural roads, that I think we need to create some safety videos and when you come back for your license renewal that you are required to watch these new safety videos. So I feel like that's something that we should be doing on a national level in any event. Well, that's an interesting thing to potentially when you're in the rooms with the people that you know who might be around kind of influencing Secretary Buttigieg, like, you know, 
multimodal mode education in driver's ed, these sorts of safety videos. And with regard to safety videos, I'd say the most powerful for me in any case are the ones where you're, you see that vision of what a person driving a truck, you know, mainly the one that was the lorry in the UK where you're sitting up on in that truck and you have no idea there's like 30 people on bikes you know, just along the left side of you, like from the perspective of a biker, this is what holy cow, it looks like when you're riding down a road that supposedly has safe infrastructure, and people are still skirting you by inches, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, we need, and it's virtual reality. So maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's that sort of a thing. Like, it's really, you are experiencing what it's like to be a biker. That's the video. That's the safety video. Most recently in Boston, um, that the Transit Authority has had bus drivers, I think I saw a photo of this, bus driver training has bus drivers on, on these little stationary bikes next to, it's, it's like on a course. So the bike dri bus drivers are sitting on stationary bikes and their peers are driving the buses by them and they can feel what it feels like to have a bus one foot away, three feet away at these different speeds. And I once went to a lecture by a woman who was teaching bus drivers how to drive. And I think it was like Kenya when she was the queen of training bus drivers. Um, and she had done the same setup. And I thought that's really that part of your training is let's have you feel what this feels like to have you zoom by. Those stories, what if we really talk with the bus drivers that learned that way? And then that itself, like you see, you experience it. And then that also becomes a safety video. It's like, these are the bus drivers in Indianapolis that were trained this way. When this, when they were done with this little practice, what you see their say? face. Yep. You see their face and they're like, oh my God, it was so scary. I, I will never forget the feel of that. Right. You get them to say it in their own words. That's the training video. Yeah. 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 So we'll um, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to have, I'm going to tell you my cautionary tale that happened to me about six days ago. Um, I was riding my bike down a main street in Cambridge, Massachusetts Avenue, and it's two lanes each side. And I was wearing two headphones instead of just one. And, and a siren was behind me. And I knew a siren was behind me, but I'm up against the parked cars. And I did not pull over to stop because I didn't think he was right there behind me. And this ambulance, it was actually a, one of these kind of big rescue SUVs. He must have passed me. I felt like he was like six inches away. <gasps> and it gave me a heart attack. And I thought, wow. And it was because I misjudged his distance. Like I definitely heard him and I knew he was there, but I didn't think he was right immediately behind me. So Note to all listeners, <laughs> one headphone or zero headphones, but definitely oh, not two headphones. I love it. I love it. Um, so I want to wind down a little bit. So a couple of things I want to ask you, because the main, we didn't go super deeply into it, but, but I want the gist of this for listeners to be, look into this Freedom Network and let's raise some noise about it. And one thing I want to know is, are you using, when you tweet about it, are you using hashtag Freedom Network? Yes. And then two, do you have one LinkedIn post or one blog post that I can just pull thereby asking people to amplify it? And then I can pull it up and tweet it out to Pete Buttigieg whenever and whatever. Do you have like a LinkedIn post? that's just the basic framing. Um, I will give you my Twitter thread 
and I do have a two pager with all the charts in text, but I never posted it because I was waiting to write an article and then. Okay. Whatever. Are you going to write an article or can I, one thing that I would say is that I will put it on my LinkedIn and I will say, this is Robin's thing just so that we have one thing to do it. Cause yes. I'll take the time to do I that. I will send it to you. Yep. I'll send okay. it to you. And so I'll just, what, you know, very minimally because I want, we didn't talk about it enough. I think it's super great. I think with regard to just transition, I think with regard to jobs, right. Because it is like a WPA, this is, and yep. that isn't getting enough love. So I think the elements of your two pager, and kind of the Twitter thread, I could put those together into a LinkedIn post. It will just be what it is. I might even put it on my blog, just what's so yeah. there. Yeah. And then yeah. we have something to refer to. And then let's stay in touch. And will you please use Freedom Network as a I hashtag do. from now on? Yes. And, and I will see it and use it too and pair it. I'll be pairing it with Bikes for Climate, right? So all these, we can start something. Yeah. And let's get some momentum and, and let's stay in touch. And I think the listeners will love everybody. Follow Robin Chase. It's, is it Robin M. Chase? At R.M. Chase. Meredith. At R.M. Chase on Twitter. Everybody follow her. She's doing amazing stuff and kind of having these wonderful conversations at global scale and with really interesting people that potentially we can all help influence. So I wanted to thank you so much for your time, Robin. And we'll be in touch and maybe we can circle back, you know, in six months or eight months or a year or something and see how things are going. And yes. I will see you on Twitter in the meantime. Okay. Bye. Bye. It was lovely. Bye Robin. Bye.